Welcome to this Bible Center Church Core class. We hope that this in-depth teaching of God's Word will challenge you to grow in your knowledge of Him and help you become a disciple who makes more disciples. Welcome to our core class. Today we're going to be looking at inerrancy and the topic of interpretation when it comes to the Bible. We're continuing to look at the Word of God uh, as we go through different sessions on the Bible, how to understand it, what is it all about, why do we have it. So today again is inerrancy, and we're going to talk about interpretation. If you have your book with you, uh, which you can print out for yourself, you can download it right there where you are, you can just look at it online, or we can print it out for you too for $10. If you go online and let us know and pay your $10, bucks. we will print it out for you and you can pick it up on a Sunday, or you can come by my office and pick it up. We're on page 16 in that book. Uh, when it comes to inerrancy, there was a statement that came out several years ago, like probably 20 years ago, trying to just make sure that Christians didn't lose the reality of inerrancy, that the Bible is perfect and true. Listen to the statement, and we're going to kind of work through it in our topics today. It says, inerrancy means that when all the facts are known, the scriptures in their original autographs, which is in the original copies, and when they're properly interpreted, will be shown to be wholly true in everything they affirm, whether it has to do with doctrine or morality or with social, physical, or life sciences. So basically, inerrancy means when the Bible speaks, it's right, it's true. So we believe that. That's in our doctrine statement, and we here at Bible Center hold on to that. So we don't have any of the original autographs. We don't have a copy of Paul's letter to the 1 Corinthians. We don't have the book of Deuteronomy in a vault somewhere in a museum. We don't have those things. So how do we know that what we're holding on to is truly God's Word? A couple things. One, we must recognize that God's hand was in the entire process. They're God's Word. They were preserved by God Himself. Transmission was often a sacred duty of God's people. With incredible diligence and care, we picked which books of the Bible were clearly from God. And we ended up with this 66 book volume called the Bible. When Jesus was talking about the Old Testament, He said, it is God's Word. He talked about not abolishing it, but fulfilling it. And that not one letter of it will disappear until the end of time. So Jesus looked at it and said, this is it. Um, so we know that this is the canon. This is the Bible that God gave us. There are variations in some of the manuscripts, the old manuscripts that we have. But they're known. They've been considered and they've been clarified. You are holding on to, in your hands, if you've got a Bible, a miraculous book that is God-breathed, representing and teaching the work of Almighty God through the centuries. I would say it's probably the greatest miracle on planet Earth is the Bible that you're holding on to. A common question is, do I need to know Hebrew or do I need to know Greek to really know my Bible? You don't. Translations are something that God chooses to use. When Jesus was quoting the Old Testament, even though the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew, it had also been translated into Greek. That's called the Septuagint. Jesus would quote sometimes from the Hebrew. Jesus sometimes quoted from the Greek version, the Septuagint, as he spoke in Aramaic, which was the next translation. So we don't have to read Hebrew. We don't have to read Greek. It's helpful to do so, especially if you're writing a commentary, but it is not necessary. So what is the difference between today's different translations that the Bible, that, you know, are produced for us today? I want to talk through that a little bit. Here are some of the major translations. There's the New American Standard, 
the KJV, the ESV, the NIV, the New Living Translation, and the Message. I put them in this order because of the way that they are created and translated. This is more of a word-for-word -word translation. Like if you were to look at the Greek, you just see the Greek word, the English word, the Greek word, and the English word as close as possible in a way that we can still understand it. If you speak Spanish, uh, we would say the gray house, they would say the house gray. So in Greek, they would switch, even here, to gray house. So it kind of mimics the way that we speak in English, but it's as close to word for word as it can be and still be readable. So here they're thinking one word, the other word. One word, like as much as they can, word for word. Here is more thought for thought or phrase for phrase. It's called a dynamic equivalence where they'll read six words and then try to translate those six words in a way that is as true as possible to the original intent and purpose of the six words in Greek or the phrase or the sentence in Greek. New Living Translation is more of a thought for thought. So what is the thought that Jesus is trying to get across here? Well, that's how we're going to translate, and they try to portray and give the thought behind what Jesus is saying, not just the word-for-word -word translation. So depending on what your intention is, will determine which one you should be reading. When I'm doing more of an in-depth study, I tend to go here, to the New American Standard. When I'm trying to read something to my kids, I'm going more in this range, because this is easier to read. This is designed to be as readable as possible. This isn't quite as easy. When it comes to translation, let me give you an example. So if you're in Mexico and someone says to you, me falta dos pesos, okay? That's what they say. If you're talking to someone uh, who's trying to like do a word for word translation, it would look something like, I lack two pesos. So it sounds like a statement, and the response would be is, I'm sorry you don't have two pesos. That's really sad. If you go with more of an ESV NIV translation of me falta dos pesos, you would realize what the person is saying is, I need two dollars. When they say this in Mexico, it's a phrase that has a meaning that is beyond just the words in the phrase. They're saying, I actually need some help. I need two dollars. If you're going all the way over to the New Living Translation of the Message, the way you would translate me falta dos pesos is, dude, lend me two bucks. Okay, lend me two bucks. So this is typically how you would translate it if you lived in Mexico and you spent time hanging with people where you hear this over and over again, you would realize this is the meaning behind those words. So in this situation, this side's a little bit more helpful. But there's other situations where if you miss the meaning of an individual word, it can draw you away from what the intention of the author is. So it's good to have both. If I'm doing an in-depth study or I'm getting ready to preach or teach something, I usually read this first, and then I'll read one of these, just to see kind of how the both of them go at the same text. So this would be an example of different ways of translating the same thing, depending on where you land on how you translate. Our commentary is helpful. If you're going into an in-depth study, commentaries are great. There's um, Tyndale, Holman, there's a couple of different people that produce the commentaries that produce ones that are very easy to use for people who don't know Hebrew or Greek. There's some tougher ones, 
But if you want to know more about those, you can stop by my office and look at my commentaries and see which ones would work for you. I can send you a list of ones that might help. In that definition, it talks about being as close as possible to the original. Then it also talks about the importance of proper interpretation. If you do not properly interpret something, it doesn't matter if the original is correct or not. You've just skewed it. You've twisted it. You've changed it. So what you're saying is wrong, even if the original interpretation, the original translation is correct. So it's super important that we have a good translation and we also then interpret it correctly. The very first core class that we did was called How to Study Your Bible for All It's Worth. In that one, it was like a two and a half hour one that we did. I would encourage you, if you're super inter interested, go back and watch that whole thing. I'm going to summarize it in a very short way here. Without proper interpretation, the Bible will be misunderstood, misapplied, and misused. Oftentimes, for personal gain. Sometimes I really want the Bible to say something, so I'll interpret it in a way, and then I'll apply it in a way, just so I can do what I really want to do. We've seen that historically over and over again. There's horrible things that have happened in the name of God or in the name of the Bible. So oftentimes the Bible can be twisted. But the question isn't what do I want it to say, but what does it actually say? So when I do it, it loses its authority. It loses its potential for actual application. It loses its power and it can be used to abuse others rather than to love and draw people to Jesus. So interpretation is huge. When understood, when properly interpreted, the Bible is our ultimate authority. The first step in interpreting scripture is not to ask, what does this mean to me? The first question is, what does it mean? What did the author intend to say? What was the author's point? It doesn't matter what you want him to say. The question is, what did he say? What was his, interp what was his point when he said it? To know this, you need to know a little bit about the author, you need to know a little bit about who he's talking to. You need to understand what he said, why he said it, and what was the context of, and purpose for what he was saying. So it does take a little work to interpret things correctly. If you jump into the middle of 1 Timothy, but you don't know who Timothy is, you don't know the situation, you don't know Paul's relationship to Timothy, you don't know what's going on with the church that Timothy is leading, you're not going to come to a correct understanding of what is being said and why. If you go to the book of Galatians and you read the book of Galatians and you see over and over again uh, that Paul is emphasizing that you don't need to do good works to be saved, you could leave the book of Galatians and just think my personal holiness doesn't matter. But in light of the fact that the Galatians were believing that you needed to add to the gospel to be saved and that he was fighting against that, then you understand the context. Personal holiness is super important, but they were overemphasizing it as a key component to salvation, which is adding to the gospel. So you have to understand the context and the purpose to interpret it properly. If it's not interpreted properly, it loses its authority. Another thing, we have to understand how the audience would have heard it when they read it for the first time. It doesn't matter so much how you and I understand it when we read it for the first time. We're coming into it with a world of professional sports, social media, pandemics, natural disasters, crazy things that are happening that we're aware of all around the earth 24 hours a day. We're, our context isn't the same as the context of the audience who received the letter, but the author was writing first to them. So we first need to understand what did they hear when they read these words? What was their situation? What was happening in their world, in their church? What were their issues? What were their struggles? What misunderstanding was taking place? 
that the author was speaking into? And what was their relationship with the author? So the question is, what did the author intend to say? How would the audience have heard it? So it takes a little work to get there. Here's some helpful tools. These are in the book. One, Nelson's complete book of Bible maps and charts. I go to it every time. It's super easy, super quick. It kind of just gives you an overview of when the book was written, who wrote it, and what are the major themes of the book. Another good one is Eerdmann's Handbook to the Bible. Most of your handbooks go over the basics of the context of the books that were written. When you're reading the Bible, you need to know what genre you're reading. A genre is a type of literature. If you're in the book of Proverbs, you're reading sayings that are based in wisdom. You're not reading promises. So when you read uh, a promise, it talks about if you set your child in the right way that they will live their lives for the Lord, and then you have a child who you do the right things, but they wander off, and then you're mad at God, that's an issue because you took a proverb, which is a likelihood, and treated it like a promise, which is a guarantee from God. Proverbs are not guarantees from God. Proverbs are likelihoods that when you live this way with wisdom, this is what's likely to happen. It's a proverb is a probability not a promise that you base your life on. So you have to understand the genre that you're in. It's like the difference between reading a handbook and a love letter. You would never write a love letter like you'd write a handbook to fix a radiator. That won't get you anywhere. Uh, if you're reading a sports report versus a mockumentary where they're making fun of something, if you don't understand what you're reading and you don't think of it from the point of view of what the author's trying to communicate, you get into trouble. If you're reading the words of Jesus and it says, if your eye offends you, pluck it out and you go get a spoon, you're in trouble because you didn't realize Jesus was using hyperbolic language or exaggerated speech to make a point. He wasn't being literal. He was trying to make a point that you would never forget. And you'll never forget the idea of plucking your eye out. But Lord willing, don't go pluck your eye out because that wasn't the purpose of why he used that type of literature, that type of genre. Some additional rules. A text can never mean what it never originally meant. A text can never mean what it never originally meant. For example, a good one is Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 5. It says, look at the nations, observe, be amazed, stand in wonder, because I'm going to do something in your days you would not believe even if you were told. So, God speaking to Habakkuk, it sounds amazing, like stand in wonder, be amazed. God's on the move. God himself is doing something. I've seen that verse on sweaters. I've seen it on mugs. Like, our day is going to get better because God's doing something great. Couple issues. One, that wasn't written to us. That was written to a particular person in a particular situation about what was happening in that day. First thing. Second thing is the wonderful thing that God was doing is he was raising up the Babylonians to come in to crush and destroy Israel. Is that the wonderful thing that you want to see happen? Is that what you want on your mug? God's raising up another nation to kill me? Like, that's what Habakkuk 1.5 is actually about. So it's important to know the context. It, can mean, it cannot mean something other than what it originally meant. Another thing, biblical principles can be formed when present-day comparables are similar to the situations in the biblical text. If you're reading 1 Corinthians and it's talking about divisions in the, in the church over sin, preferences, and opinions— and you have a church that's dividing over sins, preferences, and opinions, the way Paul handles that situation is very helpful for how we handle our situation. If we're in a situation where people are living and indulging in sin, the book of James handles a bunch of people like that. James calls them 
to realize that if they have a dead faith, if, if there's no works, their faith is likely dead. And he calls them to repent and to mourn and to return to the Lord. If our church is in that situation, that's likely how we respond. So similarities between their situation and our situation is where we can truly apply things quickly, accurately, and well. This is also important. Words have meaning in sentences. Sentences have meanings in paragraphs. Paragraphs have meaning in sections. Therefore, verses should not be taken out of context. They need to be seen in context so that we understand what the author was trying to get to. Philippians 4.13 is that idea that I can do all things in Christ Jesus who gives me strength. How often have you heard that be the cheer of a football team as they go out and get beat? Or a kicker who's about to go out and kick a field goal and he just says to himself, he, he believes the promise. I can do all things. I can kick a 70-yard field goal because I'm in Christ. Well, when the ball goes 45 yards and is 30 yards short of, the, short of the field goal, was God unfaithful? Did Jesus not fulfill his promise to that child? Does, does that football player need to walk off the field and give up on his faith? The context of Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, is that Paul says there's been times when I've had a lot, there's been times when I've had almost nothing. And whether I have a lot or I have nothing, Jesus has taught me contentment. So in all things, I can do all things in Christ who gave me strength. I can have a lot or I can have nothing. So what the verse is teaching, the verse is teaching contentment. What that means when the football player goes out there and he says, I can do all things through Christ Jesus, what that really means in context is whether the ball goes through the uprights or someone smacks it down or when it goes halfway and then hits the ground, it doesn't matter because as long as I have Jesus, I have everything I need. I can be content no matter where that ball goes, whether I'm successful or not. That's how you properly interpret that verse. But you only know that when you put that verse back into his paragraph and that paragraph back into his section. So proper interpretation realizes and understands the importance of that. So you always have to look at verses based upon their historical context, their genre, and their literary context. What was going on historically, what's going on in terms of the type of literature that we're reading, and what's going on before and after the verse that we're reading. All of those components are super important. A couple other things to remember. The Bible itself has an interesting use of interpretation. Several things we need to acknowledge and understand. The Bible oftentimes uses ordinary speech, not technical speech. So sometimes the Bible speaks in generalities, and we have to be okay with that. For example, there's times in the Old Testament where one author in Chronicles is talking about the same battle that's in one of the kings. The one author will say there were 80,000 soldiers. The other one will say there were 78,451. Well, in one case, he didn't sit down and actually count all of them. He just it was speaking in general. In the other case, his intention was to give an exact accounting of how many soldiers. Is one right and one wrong? No. Based upon their intention of why they put the number down, this one gave you a feel of how many was out there. This one tells you exactly how many were out there. So if you don't know the intention, if you don't know if it's supposed to be technical or just ordinary speech, you won't know how to judge the passage. So we have to realize what the intention of the passage was. Jesus' sayings, he spoke in Aramaic, and it was written in Greek. So even from the very beginning, translation is a part of our process of understanding what is said. There are differing ordering of topics at times. For example, the chronology of Christ. Uh, we have Matthew and you have Luke. One is written to a Jewish audience. One is written to more of a Greek audience. One focuses more on like, the passage of time through the fathers. One's more focused on just the most important figures 
in his chronology. Is one right and one wrong? No, all of them were a part of genealogy. But in one case, this was the focus. In the other case, this was the focus. Both are true. New Testament, interestingly enough, often quotes from the Greek Old Testament, not the Hebrew Old Testament. Um, you'll see within the Gospels, they'll be talking about the same story, but they'll talk about it in slightly different ways because everyone got to see what Jesus did, but one saw it from a mount, one saw it standing beside Jesus, one talked to Jesus after it happened, the other one didn't. The one heard what Jesus said, the other one saw what Jesus said. So as they all watched the same thing happen or were a part of the same thing happening, they had different points of view. If you and I watched the same thing from different points of view and all described what happened, by reading all three or four accounts is how you get the best picture of what happened. Apparent errors in scripture. There's only 60 possible known. Usually this is a result of a lack of knowledge and all of them have a clear understanding of why it looks like something is off or there's an error, but it's not. If there was a true error in scripture, you and I would know about it. Christianity would have disappeared from the face of the earth a long time ago. The Bible you have is a Bible you can trust. One more thing. We used to use the word infallible to describe scriptures. It used to mean the same thing as inerrant. Inerrant means that it's true and faithful in all things that it says. Spiritually, the more liberal side took the word infallible and stole it and started saying that infallible meant only when it speaks of spiritual things the Bible's accurate, but in everything else is inaccurate or we can't trust it. So what happened is conservative Christianity, this isn't political, just conservative Christianity, pulled the word inerrant and held on to it and wrote that definition that we started with so that we can say in all things where God speaks, he speaks correctly. All things, not just spiritual things, all things. So we would say the Bible is infallible and it's inerrant. It's both. That's a really important distinction, just so you know that. As we move forward, we're going to be talking about the authority of Scripture and the sufficiency of Scripture. So next time we're together, those will be our topics. I look forward to seeing you then.